Good morning, everybody. Oh, man. You know, there are some times when I feel like I, I can't uh, follow the video, and there's other times when I feel like I can't follow the worship team. And uh, today, um, I feel like I can't follow either of them. Um, that worship was fantastic this morning. And uh, um, Jeff coming off of having the flu, can't tell you how much I appreciate him and uh, this team coming together and, and uh, being able to do what they do is uh, phenomenal to me, particularly someone who is not gifted in any way, shape, or form. And uh, Mike, it was good to have you up front joining the team. Man, it was awesome to see you using your giftedness. Um, I want to recap last week, and we're uh, because at kind of lends itself to where we're going today in 2 Thessalonians. So that's the, the little letter that we're in this week. Last week, uh, Roger Horning was here and filling the pulpit for us, and he shared four marks of a healthy church. And he said, and if it's four marks of a healthy church, since the church is people, it's really uh, four marks of a healthy Christian. And as he went through and unpacked um, uh, first uh, Thessalonians, he talked about a, a healthy church has a powerful gospel message. And it, he was digging on in in chapter one. And then he went into chapter two and he talked about a, a, a healthy church has godly motivation for sharing the gospel. And then also in chapter two, he focused in on a, a healthy church, a healthy Christian has a submission to God's word. Now, for many of us, we might think, well, of course, that, that's no problem, but I just have to let you know, I get challenged by the fact when I realize um, how often I stray and uh, how often I am not allowing God's word to speak into me to the point of, of change in my life. I can hear God's word, right? And it's like, oh yeah, that's good but then I can go right on out and continue doing just the opposite of what it has encouraged or instructed me to do. And so he also talked about the last mark of a, of a healthy Christian or a healthy church is so looking forward to Christ's return. Um, uh, you know, and I, and I was convicted about that because there are times um, I... I I can't say that I'm looking forward to Christ's return. I mean, I, I am, but that's not like something that's really passionate within me. That's not something that's driving me. That's not something like today's the day the Lord could return. And so how am I living my life to best glorify him? If I'm being honest with you, I'm thinking about, yeah, the Lord's gonna return They've been waiting for a couple thousand years. I know he's going to return, and that's going to be incredible, but I might already be with him, you know, uh, before he comes back for that second coming. And, uh, you know, so I was just convicted by that. And, and then as preparing for this book, Second uh, Thessalonians, a, a letter that, um, just 
Paul had to follow up from that first letter. Uh, some, some scholars say he followed up within probably about three or four months. Others just say, hey, it was sometime within a year. And apparently, Paul had uh, stayed appraised of all that was happening at Thessalonica. It's still hard for me to, to pronounce it like that, so you know what, I'm, I'm probably gonna stay with Thessalonica, all right? And, uh, you know, um, uh, and, and so he, he um, either had couriers who would come and visit him or he would have correspondence, you know, letters that would be delivered to him. And uh, perhaps the bearer of the first letter um, that uh, uh, brought Paul back an update, maybe on the condition uh, of the church, uh, which had matured and expanded. Paul, Paul um, just said so much to the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and he was referring to that, but pressure and persecution had also increased. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm humbled by what I think about what persecution was for them. The closest I can get to is when I hear about the persecution that Christians are suffering in other countries because they're literally losing their lives. The persecution that comes with if um, someone from a different faith, if, if they denounce their belief system and they become a follower of Jesus Christ, if they don't lose their life, they lose everything else. And so uh, I was just like, wow. You know, uh, that's kind of what I go, and goes through my mind when I think about persecution for the faith. Uh, the seeds of false doctrine concerning the Lord had been sown. And again, as we've talked a, a few weeks ago and, and talking about how different teachers would bring in false teaching, half teachings, you know, about Gnosticism and things like that, uh, Eastern mysticism, you know, all that kind of things. Well, there was teachers who would come on in and or letters that people would say, oh, these were from Paul. And they would teach something completely different than what Paul had instructed the Thessalonians about. And so uh, because the, these seeds had been sown, the people were starting to act really disorderly. The people were starting to really go off the reservation, so to speak. So within a few months of Paul's first letter, uh, Paul wrote the second letter to his beloved flock and, and, and he wrote for three things because um, they were discouraged by persecution and needed incentive to persevere. Uh, he also wrote uh, to the flock who were deceived by false teachers. That's another reason why he did this, and, and they were confused about the Lord's return. And finally, he, he wrote to those who were disobedient to divine commands. Particularly, in, in this book, Paul addresses with uh, refusing to work. Uh, Paul wrote this second letter to address those three issues by offering up, I, I, I um, saw an outline 
uh, by John MacArthur, and I just went, I really liked how succinctly he was able to put it. He, he wrote that by addressing those three issues that, that um, Paul wrote to comfort those who were being persecuted, and he also wrote to correct the false teaching that was taught. And finally, he, he wrote to confront the disobedient and, and the undisciplined behaviors. Now, today, I, I entitled the message, um, Idol, Idol, or Ideal? And if you're listening and you're not here, you're gonna think, well, that really sounds stupid. And if you are here and you just heard that, you're probably thinking, well, that still sounds stupid and we're here. But that's okay, because I can let you know, the longer title I was thinking of was American Idol, Thessalonian Idol, and Christian Ideal. And so I wanna just try to unpack that in, in this book for us. Um, we're gonna look at these three words in the context uh, and see what we can glean from, from this study. And so I'm turning my Bible on over to Second Thessalonians. I hope, I hope you are as well. Um, uh, but first, I have to tell you, in First Thessalonians, I'm just gonna read this verse uh, because in, in verse seven, of chapter one in 1 Thessalonians. We see this. And uh, so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. Verse nine, for they themselves report, it's those, those people in Macedonia and Achaia, they report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now I know that this is back in, in 1 Thessalonians but that verse struck me when I read it last week, it was just like, what a great reminder, even coming into this book, that Paul wrote how they turned to God from idols. And then they served the living God. Verse 10, to wait for Jesus to return from heaven. Now, we can't be sure what their idols were, probably false gods like Zeus or Apollos or, or any number of the gods that they worshiped in that day. You know, when I was a kid, athletes were my idols. Um, in particularly, if, uh, if I'm being honest, I mean, I, one, I wanted to be just like them, but there was one in particular. He was a first baseman for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And in 1973, I was 12 years old, he had an incredible stretch as a pinch hitter. And the Dodgers were winning games because just he'd come up to bat one time in the game because he, he wasn't good enough to start. 
And the Dodgers had this first baseman by the name of Wes Parker, who was pretty doggone good. And uh, this player could not throw the ball across the diamond to save his life. He was an incredible hitter. Could not throw the ball. It was psychological. There was nothing hindering him from doing it. But boy, he just could not do it. And so because he did such a great job as a pinch hitter on, on that year, and the next year, 1974, he became the starting first baseman for the Los Angeles Dodgers. His name was Steve Garvey. And Wes Parker retired. And the only place on a baseball field where you can stick a guy who can't make a throw is at first base. And he was a gold glove first baseman. He saved uh, Davy Lopes and Bill Russell particularly and Ron Say. He saved all kinds of errors from those guys' errant throws. He was an incredible hitter. That year in 1974, he was the MVP of the National League. That year in 1974, the Dodgers went to the World Series where they lost to the Oakland A's. But Steve Garvey was my hero as a 12-year-old boy. I wanted to marry a girl named Cindy. That was his wife. I wanted to have a couple kids, a couple daughters. I'm, I'm not kidding. I mean, I, I just really wanted to be like I used to play shortstop. I transitioned over. I, I became a first baseman. I mean, that, that, that's what I did. I, I wanted to be like my idol. And he had this incredibly squeaky clean image, right? I mean, his hair was never out of place. He always had that smile, super nice guy. And, um, you know, I didn't understand back then that, uh, you know, people are people and everybody has uh, their own issues. But at that time, I wanted to be Steve Garvey. Knew all of his stats and uh, on the back of the baseball card, all the little information, that was just incredible for me. But when I became a follower of Jesus Christ, I learned that I should change my direction and stop looking at people I could imitate and idolize and start following Jesus and imitating him and making sure that he was, quote unquote, my idol, that I wasn't going to place anything else, any person or anything else in front or on top of Jesus. Now, now let's fast forward to 2 Thessalonians chapter two. So if you'll turn there. And um, I, I'm gonna read this passage and starting in verse one, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us. Again, it was very um, disturbing and unsettling that uh, people would, would um, forge Paul's name. He would have scribes write it, but at the end of his letters, he would always write his signature so people would know, this is from me. So we come back over there, and, and he says, saying that the day of the Lord has already come, 
Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshiped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now verse five, don't you remember that when I was with you I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back? So that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back, some translations have the restrainer, will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. Verse eight, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. And in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Now, as, as we look at that, um, we see all kinds of things. You know, you see in, in verse three where it talks about the man of lawlessness. In verse eight, the lawless one. In verse nine, the lawless one. The man of lawlessness will perform miracles and have amazing powers. But those powers will be to glorify Satan and not God. They will be true, miraculous powers though. They're just forfeits. So I want you to understand that there is power that this lawless one will have, but it's not power from God, but it's power from Satan. And uh, he will lead people away from God's love and grace. He will be just the opposite of Jesus, who did everything in accord with the Father's will in order to reach as many people as possible with the good news of his Father's love and of Jesus' love and sacrifice. Now, let's not play the game of who this man of lawlessness is going to be. Okay, we're not gonna play that game. At least I'm not going to because there have been so many people throughout the years who have said, oh, it's this, oh, it's that, oh, it's this person, oh, hey, it's this person. I, I remember hearing some people claiming that that's our very own president in the past decades. A number of different presidents, oh, we were wrong on this president, but it's really this president. And then others are saying, oh, it's gotta come from Europe. And other, yeah. listen, we're not, we're not gonna play that. All I wanna focus in on is that person is going to be an idol. He is going to be somebody who a lot of people are going to look to as their hero, as their savior. And his whole goal is to lead people away from God the Father and lead them over to 
his father, Satan. This man of lawlessness is the Antichrist. And we saw on the video, and, and you can see it on your sheet, you know, that it, it's falling in line with, hey, you know, uh, in the past, they thought it was Nebuchadnezzar or the king of the north. At the time, they think it was the Roman emperors. You know, it, people can guess all they want. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. And, and why do I bring this up? Um, because... That idol is going to have a chance to lead people away from, from Jesus. But for you and I today, what are your idols? See, for here, Paul spells out there's going to be this man of lawlessness. I shared with you, hey, my idol as a boy was I wanted to be like Steve Garvey. But what's your idol? I mean, is it a person who's possibly leading you away from Christ? Is it something that you're pursuing so hard that you've lost sight of your real purpose in life? To to glorify God? Career. That has become uh, many people's idols. Relationships. That has become an idol in and of itself. And money. Boy, we already know how, how easy that one can be an idol. Success, drivenness, recognition. I mean, the list can go on and on. All I wanted to do is, is try to, to help open up your eyes to know that we all are wrestling with different idols. No matter how subtle or how glaring they may be. There are times where I have, I put the idol of acceptance. I want to be accepted. And in the context within the church, I want to be accepted. I want to be able to, to open up God's word in such a way that people go, wow, thank you God, that, that Craig opened up your word this morning. And do you see where it can go sideways really quick? I'm privileged to open up God's word. I, I, I'm excited to do that. But when all of a sudden, when I'm being honest, it creeps on in that the acceptance part, why is that so strong in me? Why am I worried about man's acceptance of me more than I am of God's? It's just something I'm, I'm, I'm just, I can't stand up here and, and uh, be fake with you. That's an area that will pop up. I wish I could say it's only popped up and now it doesn't pop up anymore. It does. In all these other areas as well. I can tell you as a husband and as a father, 
I've gone through stages where I've put my family above my relationship with God. It's an idol. Rick's preached on this before. I don't, I don't think we can hit on it enough when we have to really come to terms with are we keeping God number one? Are we keeping our relationship with Jesus more important than my relationship with my wife? More important than my relationship with my kids? More important than my relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ? More important than my relationship with my coworkers? More important than my relationship with anybody else? It's a struggle but I can't just get complacent about it. I can't just blow it off. I think the first thing we have to do is acknowledge that we do have idols. And then the next thing is, is that we need to confess them and own them and, and focus, uh, shift the focus off of whatever those may be and back to Jesus. Craig, that sounds so simple. It is in the sense that it doesn't take us jumping through a whole bunch of hoops. But it's very difficult for us to be able to just say, wow, I've got to take action to make this become a reality. Well, so much for the, the idol you know, um, I was going to talk about a whole th- bunch of stuff about the American Idol and, and how it's like, wow, and, and yet, skip that. But Idol, I-D-L-E, that's going to be in chapter three. So if you'll look with me to chapter three, and uh, I'm going to be reading starting in verse six. And for a lot of you in your Bibles, it even has the tagline right before that verse, warning against idleness. This is not a person, ideal, or object. Paul was addressing a concern that people were not doing anything as a result of their misunderstanding that they thought Christ had already returned. So in Starting in verse six. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we did not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Verse 11, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them. 
in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. Man, these are harsh words. I mean, th- this is some strong correction. But what had happened is because, oh, well, well, the day of the Lord, psh, why work? Why do anything? I mean, it's, it's coming any minute. For others, like, oh, we missed it. Oh, no. What do we do? Well, well why bother? And they, they just kind of gave up. It's more kind of like, a, psh, okay, whatever. And, and so you look at this. In verse 6, Paul instructs, keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive. Verse 10, it says, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Cooper paraphrase, no worky, no eaty. Right? I mean, you don't work, you ain't eating. It's as simple as that. Verse 11 He says, uh, we hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. Same thing that he said in verse six. He says, they are not busy. They are busy bodies. You know what busy bodies are? Those are people who love going on over and getting in everybody else's business. And they don't do anything. They don't contribute anything for the good of anybody. Now, they can come across like that and then come across, and, and, and you know what? I've even come across people who have just been like, hey, how can I pray for you, Pastor Craig? Great thing. I love when people pray for me. And I know many of you in here pray for me. But what they do is that is then they go, oh, okay. And then they'll go, wow. You know, Pastor Craig, whoa, he's really messed up. You know I mean? I, well, you know, I mean, I just share it with you so you can be praying for him as well. Right? You get the point where I'm coming from here. Not that prayer is bad. But if someone's going to take prayer and then turn it into gossip or twist it into slander, and then they go to somebody else and they want to ask somebody else their things and they want to get into everybody else's business. That's what Paul was talking about here. Verse 12, he said, such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. It's gonna take work. There's no free lunch program. Now, hear, hear, me, hear me well, okay, because you, you can't talk about everything you wanna talk about in a message, but understand this. This is for people who are capable of working, Now, I am all for making sure we do everything to help those who need help, okay? I'm not even gonna go through all the the lists of, of who I would think would fall into that category. But please understand, let's separate right now the difference from those who do need help. Yes, that's what the body of Christ is for. Do you know, that's why we have a, a good Samaritan fund. That's for people who aren't a part of our church, but we find out about needs, and, and you 
contribute to that fund. And that goes to help people who, who aren't a part of our church, but who we're saying, you know, we, we want to give you the love of Jesus. But we also have the love fund. That's for people within our church. That's for people who, because of different circumstances, not from laziness, not from idleness, not from, well, you know what, hey, somebody else can pay for it. I, I'm not going to pay for it. Not for people with that mindset, but for people who are dealing with all kinds of different issues. They could have lost their job. Not because they were a poor employee, but because their company downsized or was bought out or, or somebody else got, got, the, got the promotion or job who wasn't as good of a worker as you. In some cases, even here, it can be because, well, you know what? Maybe if you're living your faith out loud, um, people are like, yeah, I really don't want them around here anymore, yeah, the Christian. And so maybe you'll be bypassed. And, and, and therefore, it's like, hey, we had to let somebody go. I don't know what the different reasons are. I'm just letting you know that, you know, we're supposed to be able to earn our keep. So please don't leave here today thinking, wow, Pastor Craig, he's really harsh. It's, um, there, are, there are times, and, and I, I just, this is just me personally, I just try to pray about when opportunities come my way, and I'm, I am going to say opportunities because I still wrestle with them, but I look at it, these must be opportunities when people come to me who are asking for a handout. I still pray about that. Um, uh, I, I don't give money. If they ask me for something at a gas station, I say, bring your car on over, I'll fill it up for you. If we're over by a place that's anywhere near or close to any kind of food, say, hey, you know, can I buy you a meal? Um, uh, on very, very rare occasions have I given money. And so I'm just kind of trying to say, okay, Lord, how, how am I supposed to do this? If I make an error, I'd rather make an error in being gracious than in being stingy because I don't want it to be an angel unaware situation. I don't want to be a goat. Like, when did I see you hungry, Lord? Well, I don't remember that. Huh, really? Gosh. When, when I, oh, I don't remember that, Lord. So I want to try to use discernment in those ways, but this, Paul is specifically addressing people who are like fully capable, but just... Uh, maybe if I could say, taking advantage of the situation and so they weren't going to do anything. And, and look what Paul says in verse 14. It says, take note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them. Why? Well, he's, he says right there, in order that they may feel ashamed. Now remember, the, the goal is to win brothers and sisters back, right? It's not a, see, because these are believers. These are believers. And then look at what he says in verse 15. Right after it sounds like really harsh, don't associate with them. Verse 15, he says, yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them. 
It's a warning, as you would a fellow believer. The goal in, is by not associating with them that they would feel ashamed like, oh, wow, yeah, maybe, maybe I should kind of contribute here. And by not associating with them, the goal is, well, I, I missed relationship. So the goal isn't kind of like hold them off like, eh, no, no, never, sorry, nah, I can't associate with you. The goal is, oh, man, I'm so glad. I missed you. I wanted you back. It's like tough love as a parent. Right? And, and it's kind of like, man, I, you know, I, I love you, but I, I, you know what? There's certain things that you're doing. It's kind of like, wow, how can I show you the best love without enabling you? And so we struggle with, with that tension, right? And that's what I think Paul's talking about. And then in that same chapter, um, f- verses seven through nine, is where we talk about the ideal. How should we be? And so in, in, in verses seven through nine, he says this, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. You know what? It kind of puts me to shame because... Uh, uh, now I'm still going to accept it. But when I go out to lunch with friends, you know, and they oh, Pastor Guy, we'll, we'll get that taken care of. You know, it's kind of like, ooh, maybe should I, should I not do that? Would, I, would, would that somehow communicate that, you know, yeah, yeah, sure, pay for my meal. It's like, no, so I'm not going to confuse my stuff with this issue for right now. But he says, um, Uh, On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. And look at verse nine. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. And then drop down to verse 13. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. I don't know about you, but man, I I get fatigued. (laughs) I get tired. And and that's not not, uh, something I could say like, because I'm doing good all the time. I can get tired from doing just a little good some of the time. And yet this challenge is never tired of doing what is good or doing what is right. Never get tired of loving Jesus and loving others. Again, verses eight and nine, Paul's example, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day laboring and toiling so that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. Man. He says, we did this not because we do not have the right to sex help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. And again, whose model was Paul imitating? When, when Jesus, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve. Again, it, it always comes back to Jesus. Always and every time. 
the blessing is that we're not a burden on anyone. Also that we are a blessing to others. That's the ideal. So that we're not a burden on anybody, but we are a blessing to others. When you give uh, tithes and offerings, when you give donations to missionaries, you're giving so that all of a sudden it's like, okay, blessing others to continue on with the work of the ministry. I, I don't take that for granted, folks. Because snap of fingers, everybody could say, okay, we're out of here, boom. I don't take that for granted at all. But you've reflected your love for God. You've reflected your love for this community. You've reflected your belief in what we're trying to accomplish to make disciples, to reach the lost, to strengthen and encourage one another. That's the ideal that we continue to strive toward. So I, I don't know what idol struck a chord with you or the ideal, but um, uh, I think it's pretty easy that when we can see from Paul because it's everything he does has one purpose, to make Jesus known. I hope that that's our purpose too and continues to be. Let's pray. Father God, um, I uh, am so grateful for your patience with me. Lord, your patience with all of us. I thank you for the way you love us and encourage us and comfort us and instruct us and even chastise us. It's all because of your love, unconditional. And I pray, Father, that as we um, have interacted with this book, that we could um, just glean truth, that we could be encouraged. Lord, I thank you for Paul's example of how he he commends and prays for the different churches of the letters he's written to. Lord, may I be a, a, a stronger prayer warrior. May we as a church use prayer as our primary weapon and turn to you and trust in you that you will do the work that you and only you can do in the hearts and the minds of each and every one of us. Just give you praise and thank you for who you are in Jesus' name. Amen.